We are live from the Empire of Lies, an oasis of free speech and open debate in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is the backstory. So, Rod, how you doing today? I'm doing well, Lee. Can't complain. How about yourself? Well, there's lots of news to talk about, and I'll talk about it, including the big tragedy. I'm sure you've heard about this. Brittany Griner is in jail in Russia, and apparently it's the number one thing in the world because the president's dealing with Brittany Griner. Let me ask you this, Rod. If you were busted for weed, do you think you could get Joe Biden involved? Oh, uh, absolutely not. And even if you could, would you? I'm just saying. Uh, no, I think I think that would hurt me more than help me. So yeah, probably not. Yeah, it could. So we'll talk about that and other stuff after the break. First time guest on the show. Very pl- proud and pleased to have Tara Reed. She has a podcast. You've heard of her through her situation with Joe Biden. And first time guest, I was on her podcast a couple couple weeks ago and proud to have her on the backstory today. And do we still have Frosty? Yep, he's still still, uh, coming on at 5.30. Okay, because you know, he's he's tricky. He's a very busy person. Our guest in the second hour is our good friend, Eagle Scout, former Marine, economist, educator, Mark Frost. That's the second hour. And there's a lot of news. So, Rod, clear your throat, build up your gravitas, and say the name of the show. Take us into the boom. You're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. Exceptional work, Rod. Very good. Very good. So I got a bunch of stuff to talk about, but seriously, when I listen to the news to prep for the show, the Brittany Griner thing. Now, President Biden has talked to her wife and 1,100 people, mostly women of color. Let me ask you this about, I don't know sports as well as you do, Rod. I barely know him. So let me ask you, how good a basketball player is Brittany Griner? Uh, she's exceptionally well. She's uh, obviously her height is what uh, makes her uh, exceptionally exceptional athlete. Okay, l- let me ask this though: If a transgender athlete were to enter the WNBA, okay, how would she do against that transgender athlete? And before you answer, I'm going to name a specific one: If a transgender athlete like Dennis Rodman joined the WNBA, how would Rodman do against Benny Griner? Uh, he do he do very well. He do very well against her. Cause you you remember him, and like Brittany Griner, he's dated a woman, Madonna. Remember that? So uh, I remember that, Carmen Electra. I remember Carmen Electra uh, more more recently than than Madonna. Right, you get that one too. But Dennis Rodman, I think, in the WNBA, would start setting some records, right? All of them. He'd get all of them. He's a, he was a great athlete. He was an amazing athlete, actually. And he did wear a dress. You remember that? So I think it's fair he to call him. He did wear a dress. That is true. I, th- I think it's fair to call him, you can call him anything, but a trans-something athlete. So Brittany Griner, President Biden called her wife and uh, 1,100 women, including Beyonce's mom, signed a letter. And let me ask you a question. First off, 
Brittany Griner, if I remember correctly, took a knee and wouldn't come out of the locker room because America is so bad to black people. Is that correct? Did, did I get that right? Um, I don't remember if she did do that, but I wouldn't be surprised if she did. Yes, yeah, she, she she did. She's one of the people, she wouldn't come out of the locker room during the anthem and took a knee and everything else. And I have one word for someone who gets a letter from Beyonce's mom and gets the president and the press secretary to talk about their weed. It's not even a conviction. She's on trial in Russia. She hasn't been convicted. Right, Rod? Yeah, Lee. Like I said, she's probably going to get some probation, a fine, and she's probably not going to be allowed in Russia. So I don't know what the big deal is. And they're apparently mad because she's even been arrested. Not that she... But if if you go whining to President Biden, oh, I, you know, you're, you're not happy, and you get him to talk to your wife and Beyonce's mom, that is elitism. You are an elitist. You are not. I don't care whether you're a person of color or a woman or a woman who likes women or whatever. You are an elitist. You've made it, right? Is that elitism, Rod, when you run running to, to the president because you were arrested on weed charges that you clearly did? She's not claiming she didn't do it. She's not saying... Dennis Rodman stuck the vape in my suitcase, right? He might have. But <laughs> she's not claiming that. She admits it's her weed. I, she's not admitting it, but she's not denying it. Do you get me, Rod? Yeah, this has been one of the stupidest, uh, I guess, media cases and uh, that they've been following. It's almost like the Amber Heard, uh, Johnny Depp, but even even dumber. Um, I guess they're, they're expecting what happened with, um, I, I think it was Lavar, uh I, I forget what the name of the son. It was one of the ball sons who was playing at UCLA, and he got guilty for stealing, uh, I think it was either Versace or Gucci glasses in China. He got locked up, and then uh, Donald Trump uh, got him out. I think they're expecting that, but that was, you know, that was different. That was UCLA was brought over by China to have some type of exhibition, and you know, they, he wasn't charged. She's been she's going through the process and Biden doesn't have any type of uh, gravitas like uh, like like Trump did. So he, even if he could, he, he what, what can he do? She's going through the process. Like I said, she'll get some type of probation, a fine, and then she'll get the boot. And also Beyonce's mom. Let me make a point. What leverage do you think Joe Biden has of Vladimir Putin? What why would Vladimir Putin give special treatment to this rich, elitist basketball player, Brittany Griner, on Joe Biden's good word. Rod, do you see my point? Why would he possibly do that? Joe Biden's called him a killer. He's accused him of all sorts of stuff that's not true and that's insulting. Vladimir, do you think Vladimir Putin feels like he owes a damn thing? To Joe Biden at all? Oh, not not at all, Lee. Uh, you know, we've had uh, Senator Graham say that uh, uh, Lindsey Graham say that uh, you know Putin needs to be taken out. Uh, Biden said things similar that uh, you know uh, enough of Putin. We you know we need to get this guy out of here. And this and that third, you know, whatever Trump, whatever you know faults Trump had, he tried, you know, at least tried to have some type of relationship with Putin versus Biden, where he's asking for regime regime change in Russia. So. No, that that would never happen. 
And also, attention, Brittany Griner ain't Solzhenitsyn. You know, she's not in the gulag. She's going through a process. She was arrested with weed at the airport and isn't denying having had it. She just doesn't like being in jail. Okay, well, that's on she's her. A, she's a feminist, Lee. She's a feminist. No, she's a, uh, I know what you're saying, but I say no. She's an elitist whiner, an elitist whiner using her celebrity connection and her money and her fame. And the fact the reason Biden applauds her is because she doesn't like America, because she's someone who took a knee and so on. That's how she's a hero to people on the left. But I say BS. The whole thing is ridiculous. And 1,100 women, shame on you. Have you ever heard of Julian Assange? Do you think these women raise one eyebrow about Julian Assange? We'll talk to Jar no. about Julian. But given what Julian Assange is raising from Biden, I think Putin should say, you want Tara Reid back? Sure. Oops, not Tara Reid. But Brittany Griner back? You want Brittany Griner? I'll tell you what. We'll trade you Assange. Do you think they, Assange should be a bargaining chip for Brittany Griner, Rod? That would be great, but that's, you know, that's just uh, a lot of opium. Yeah. So let's go to the calls, 202-521-3020. Ingrid, what's on your mind? I'm so glad you're you're taking this position. I haven't followed too much, but the half hour before you, NPR did a special show on this. And it really irritated me. Brittany wrote this letter to President Biden in which she says, oh, I'm so terrified that I may spend the rest of my life here in jail. Well, how in the world is she going to do that when the maximum sentence is 10 years and she probably won't even get that, as Rod pointed out? And not only that, her, her coach from her American team said, this is just because she's a woman and she's gay and she's black. And if it was LeBron James, he would have been home by now. And this is absurd. It's like, what, uh, Biden would have given Putin Max boot for LeBron James? I don't think so. So thank you very much. You're quite right, Lee. And it's elitism. It's the definition of elitism. It's using your money and your status and your position of celebrity to, to go, literally go to president for a pot conviction. It's not even a conviction. I misspoke. For a pot arrest, at least wait till the verdict comes in, and then we'll find out how ridiculous this all is. But thanks for the call. Great call, Ingrid. 202-521-1320. Owl killer, what's on your mind? Hey, did you by any chance happen to see that the uh, the uh, Georgia Guidestones got blown up apparently last night? What did? Somebody blew up the Georgia Guidestones last night. The English portion of it. I still don't understand what you're saying, Al Killer. Blew up the what? The Georgia Guidestones. Somebody apparently uh, blew up the English portion of them last, at, at some time last night. And I was just thinking, it would really, I, I would really be uh, heartbroken if somebody went to the Grove and took down uh, Moloch um, before their retreat. I'm, I'm sure they would, they would share in my, in my displeasure as well. Yeah. Now, I don't know what that is. Georgia Guidestones? No. Yes. I. What is that? 
So the Georgia Guidestones are it's there are these three stones that showed up, I believe, in the nineteen eighties, um, and they are attributed to some guy R. C. Christian, which it's basically Rosa Christian that or Rosa Crucian, that that's like the name, but everybody suspects that they are uh they were put up there by Ted Turner in Georgia. Um they basically say maintain population at five hundred million, come up with a uh world language. Uh, unite mankind through a world language, have world courts. It, it's basically the Ten Commandments for the New World Order. That, that's the way you could uh, view them. But I, I, it was kind of weird to wake up this morning and see that they had been uh, destroyed. Um, and I, I just couldn't. I, I just couldn't. Uh, I, I had made the comparison that if somebody would would have went into the Bohemian Grove and took down the uh, owl statue, I would really be heartbroken. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't agree with uh, vandalism like that. You know, that's a le- that's a left tactic. But I mean, it's probably the first time that I, somebody actually did something um, that didn't hurt anybody and uh, w- was actually directed at people that are creating the, the conditions in this world right now. Now, the thing I did see: Have you seen how things are blowing up in the Netherlands? Uh, the the farmers. I put a bunch of videos up on Twitter is there's both massive food shortages in Holland at the grocery store. They show areas of no food at all. Massive food shortages, big protests, and police brutality. A lot of cases where the police are beating up these protesters and really beating the hell out of them. Have you seen all that stuff going on, Al Keller? I have, and you know, for we think of police brutality in, in the United States. People have no clue how brutal the police are in uh, Germany, in places like the Netherlands, um, uh, London too. Same thing, France. Um, they brutalize protesters. Um, same thing with Australia and New Zealand. I, I think that. There, there is a major police brutality issue in uh, Western Europe, for sure. I mean, it's stuff you would expect to see, you know, uh, hap- happening in uh, East Germany, um, you know, during the Soviet occupation. Um, and it, it's it just, you, you got to go to outlets like yourself to actually hear about it. Um, I, I remember during the COVID lockdowns, I mean, there were scientists getting their door kicked in on li- live streaming uh, scientists getting their door kicked in and like just being disappeared by the German police. So I I do think police brutality in uh, Western Europe has I think they're a step before they're always about five ten years away from what happens in, in the United States. And yet no the the food shortages are real and I, I I'm that's that's what scares me to death in in this country is that we our populations have no clue. How to how to actually um, manage it? How to survive in a crisis? I, I think countries like uh, Poland or Hungary they'll be more hardened to it because of what they've dealt with. But I, I don't think Western Europe and the United States have any idea uh, what's in store if we we keep the stupidity going on with the wars. And I, I mean the, the food shortage, the food crisis. It literally comes down to the lockdowns and the stupid war in Ukraine. And you, you can thank your well, ears for that one. And I say this is but a precursor to what we have coming this winter in places like Germany. 
And the Amsterdam thing is is really a minor version of what's coming to Germany. And everyone sees it and everyone knows it's coming, but not no one's doing anything about it. Also, we'll get to Chris in one second online. Bojo says he's not leaving. And that's I say Bojo's out by the weekend, but I could be wrong. And Bojo says he's not leaving, even though a dozen people in his administration quit today. Five people quit in one letter. And he's getting a lot of pressure. But I think the pressure has just started on Bojo. And people have no clue. The wheels are coming off in Europe in a way I think the timeline is compressed. They're not five or ten years ahead. There may be six months, maybe, maybe three months, maybe on the same timeline as us. So keep an eye on that stuff. 202-521-1320. Chris, what is on your mind? Hey, Lee, thanks for taking the call. I appreciate your show. Yeah, I just wanted to mention something else that bugs me about the the U.S. hypocrisy over Brittany Griner. You know, it's not as if the U.S. is above harassing basically every single Russian athlete who competes internationally over the fact that some of them have allegedly taken performance-enhancing drugs. And yet, when one of our athletes, you know, breaks drug laws in Russia— you know, we're supposed to have a cow over the fact that she's getting punished for it. Just one athlete. When we're doing this, when we've been doing this, you know, industrial scale harassment of all Russian athletes for years, it just bugs me. And again, I appreciate your show. Thanks for taking my call. No, good point, Chris. And the Brittany Griner thing is so obviously, because again, there's no conviction yet. That's also, that's the other thing about it, is it happened early. That's why I don't get Rod. Why, why do it now? Why not wait for a conviction? Well, because, as Ingrid pointed out, you can say how scared you are you'll be in prison forever before the conviction. After she was convicted, and let's say she gets three years, it's hard for her to say that, right? I think that's what's going on. Yeah, 100% Lee, 100%. Are you worried Brittany Griner's going to spend the rest of her life in a Russian prison? <laughs> not in the least, not in the least. But, you know, Biden, we played it on the show. Biden summed up Russia, Russia, Russia. Remember we had the tape of him saying that? Russia, Russia, Russia. That sums up the Biden administration. And uh, speaking of Russia, 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 Vladimir Putin met with Shoigu, the head of the Russian military. Did you see any of that meeting? Uh, I saw a little write-up. I read a little write-up, and I saw pictures, but I didn't um, go in-depth about it. So it was interesting about it. Whereas Joe Biden doesn't even know where he was from time to time. He has no idea what's going on. Vladimir Putin is clearly involved in the military operation. You could see that from the meeting. He's aware of what's going on. And to some extent, for a guy who's the commander in chief, effectively, do you think Biden would have any clue what's going on militarily if the U.S. were in a war? 
Uh, no, Lee, not not at all. If you if you look at just a picture of him and uh, the Supreme Court justice uh, who looked who was laughing at him with Kamala Harris, um, yeah, yeah, and so Putin, congratulations, Shoigu. It was a public meeting, and it was about the victory by Russian forces and DPR forces in Lugansk, that region. And he also singled out by name the generals who led the various parts of the operation. And it was giving credit to them. And I heard something interesting on Alexander Mercorse's show. And I don't know anything about this because I was never in the military. But what they were talking about was the idea that in American culture, our military leaders lead from behind. What I mean by that is the commanders, the generals, wouldn't be up in front with the people doing the fighting. Does it make sense, Rod? They're going to stay in back and give orders from there. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, I've heard that from uh, my friends who were in the military, and they get really annoyed with these guys because they they pretty much summarize it as politicians. They tell people to do, but they don't get in, what, get involved at all. And what I'm led to understand is that Russia, they don't do that. The leaders are leading a charge, and that's good for morale. But that since the NATO forces were trained essentially by the United States. They don't do that. And so in Ukraine, they have this Russian attitude, which is the leaders should be up in front. Does that make sense? And that the leaders have been trained U.S. style to hide him back. And that's not going over well with the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians feel abandoned on the battlefield. They're not being led into battle. They're being essentially ordered into battle from the rear. Does that make sense? Yeah, I would say they're being pushed to the slaughter. Yeah, that's the way they feel. So it explains some of the morale problems. I thought that was a very good explanation about the Russian way of doing war as opposed to the U.S. way. And I'm not even saying what's better, but it's clearly different. And it clearly is not going well. Part of the reason Lugansk fell so quickly is morale is very bad. We've talked about this a lot on the show. And so people quit. People are surrendering. And people were fleeing from the battlefield, Ukrainians. And they, it's not about bravery. Brave soldiers don't want to die for nothing. Does that make sense, Rod? Yeah, no, I would agree with that as well. So let's take a short break. When we come back, we're pleased to be joined for the first time by Tara Reid, podcaster, activist. Let's take a short break on the backstory.
We are back on the Backstory, 105.5 FM, AM 1390, in Washington, D.C., the capital of the Empire of Lies, on the radio. We're joined now, and very happy to be joined, by a first-time guest, podcaster, and journalist, and activist, Tara Reed. Tara, how are you doing? Good, good. Um, it's Tara. I usually go by Tara, so, um, yeah. Sorry, 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 Tara. That's okay. Um, everyone does it. It's cool. It's the American accent. I, it's an Irish name, so that's that's uh, the pronunciation of Tara, actually. It's a place in Ireland, so. Well, thanks for the correction, because I hate to get people's names wrong, and I often do. So, so Tara, welcome to the show. I was lucky enough to be on your podcast a couple of weeks ago, and still I screw up the name. By the way, you're free to try to find a way to mispronounce Lee. <laughs> well, you know what? So much great, feed, great feedback of you being on the show. I, I got a lot of comments and questions, so thank you for doing that. Um, that was the well, so, survival. So let's get, the, let's get the promotion out of the way first. Tell people about Tari, about your podcast, and where they can find it. Well, you know, I started doing op-eds for RT uh, about a year and a half ago, and then what I loved about RT was they, you know, there's no censorship, and like as um, Lee Camp has said, another Lee, um, who had a show for 12 years with uh, RT America, they they don't tell you what to do with content. So it was all my ideas, you know, and I would submit op-eds, and and it was very, it was a very at a time when, um, you know, when you come forward, like I did about working for, uh, then Senator Joe Biden. And I came forward in 2019 and 2020 about the history with him and what happened and that I was assaulted by him and, and all of that. You kind of, everything else falls away about who you are. Like you only become that person that has just accused this powerful man. And what I what I loved about our team that allowed me to use my skills and move forward because I have uh, a long background. I have a law degree and a long background studying international politics and writing. And I wrote a book called Left Out When the Truth Doesn't Fit In. And then um, they helped me produce a podcast called The Politics of Survival. And then when the censorship happened, Spotify and Google took down the podcast. And so now I'm doing it independently, and I have people from – INN, Independent News Network, that actually volunteer to engineer and produce um, my podcast, The Politics of Survival, because I'm not a techie person. So I'm learning, but it, it takes a minute, right, <laughs> to learn how to stream. So, um, and it's doing really well. And I'm on YouTube and Rockfin and, um, you know, so far so good. So so that's every Monday now, exp- 7 p.m. Now explain the name, The Politics of Survival. What does that mean? Because it could mean a lot of things, but what does it refer to? Well, you know, I love I love the study of politics, right, and international politics, and and kind of how the world interacts, um, on a on a you know on on everything that that's been going on. And then, of course, I'm a survivor. So, um, and I felt like we're ent- entering this time period where people are basically feeling politically homeless. A lot of a lot of people are feeling politically homeless in the United States. And so it's basically just survival, right? So that's how I came up with the name. Now, Tara, I, I know you're an, you're a advocate for Julian Assange, and you're coming to us. And I want to be sensitive to this. 
during a very, I'm sure, emotional time as you're now being hit with a second as Assange is due to be extradited to the United States. You're now dealing with the Brittany Griner crisis. And I'm sure it's emotional for you. Now, is is this Brittany Griner thing a freaking joke or what? What is going on with this? I've never seen so many people so freaked out about someone being arrested for a crime and acting like an elitist and whining to the president. Do you have any take on this? Um, you know, I, I don't know a lot about her case, but I, I did um, watch, I read some of what she, she had written a plea to Joe Biden, um, which will, he might give some virtue signaling towards it, but I'm not sure he'll do anything um, substantive with it. But um, if she did actually bring in hashish oil um, through, that's an illegal substance in Russia. And when you're violating, when you're, you're, you're basically, when you're taking drugs into another country, right, um, that may be legal where you're from, but not legal where that, that, for that country, you're subject to their laws. So I'm not really sure what jurisdiction the U.S. will have over her case. Right, because it's the well, and, and also not. I just let me just point out, not just another country. If she had gone into Maine, let's say, I, I, I guess Maine is not legal. Weed is not legal. I assume it's not. I, I'm trying to think of a state, North Dakota. If she'd gone into a state where weed's illegal, and had been caught at the airport with oil, she would have gotten in trouble, right? Am I missing something? Yeah, because federally, no, no. Um, at an airport, what would be, she would be subject not to the jurisdiction as much as federal law. So, because you're in an in a airport, so that's considered federal. Now, you know, again, I have a law degree, but I'm not an expert. So, correct, yeah, I'm sure one of your listeners can correct me if I'm wrong. But my understanding is that probably it would be looked at from a federal where it's not legal. And and also, we I thought it was um, not marijuana, but I'm not sure if Vaping marijuana, but it, I thought I read it was hashish oil. If it's hashish oil, that's not legal in several states, and I don't think legal federally. But you know, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see. Was it for medicinal purposes? I know that a lot of athletes use CBD that is non-THC. In other words, it doesn't have the drug in it that they use to, um, you know, help with muscle contraction and pain. Um, is considered legal by. Um, even I think the Olympic board, like they can use some CBD. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know the details of her case. And I guess we'll find out when she's, you know, going, going through the Russian legal system. And I'm granted in the first segment, there's a lot of activism about it. 1,100 people signed a letter. And given the U.S. hypocrisy on Julian Assange, I don't want to hear about this story. Does that make sense? Because you agree, I think. That Julian Assange, he brought journalism into another, he brought journalism into this country and got in trouble for it, right? Right. I mean, I mean, I mean Julian Assange um, was, was an award-winning journalist and publisher, and he published, uh, you know, war crimes, and it was a public service. He informed, I mean, so much information came from 
the, the, the different um, documents that he was able to obtain and then, you know, that were given to him. And then he published and investigated and did. And they were all true. None of the reporting that Julian Assange has did, none of the publishing was ever um, found to be not true. It's all true. They're all war crimes, all linking, you know, elite members of the Washington leadership. And so in order to silence him, now we're in this slow motion torture publicly, and it's sort of sending this message across the world. This is what happens if you embarrass the empire. This is, you know, you will be taken to the darkest, dankest prison Belmarsh, like in England, and then extradited to another one in, in America, and he's facing 175 years, possibly, in prison simply for publishing truth. So it's, you, yeah, you can't compare those two cases. It's, it's, it's incomparable, right? Right. And, yeah, I can compare them because one of them is getting talked about on every news channel today, Brittany Griner, and one of them is buried, Julian Assange. And so that's very star, a stark contrast. Now, uh, Tara. You no, know, and you know, we. I wonder what what journalists, because you've worked in, in the field of journalism for so long. Like, what are these journalists thinking? Do they think that that what happened to Assange won't happen to them if they uncover a story and try to publish it? Because his his. Um, you know, being extradited to the U.S. when he's an Australian citizen, he's not even a U.S. citizen, under the Espionage Act, um, is ridiculous. So they're, they're basically putting him in a catch-22. He is being extradited, right, to, to, under the Espionage Act into in, the United States, but yet he will not have any of the privileges of being an American citizen because he's Australian. So if, if I had a guess... My guess is they don't think anything like that would happen to them because most people I know work in journalism wouldn't touch a story like Assange covered. They wouldn't have the guts, the intestinal or testicular fortitude to tell the truth about a story like that. So they're not worried about being put in jail because they wouldn't tell the truth. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, it does. It does. It's unfortunate. There's There's a lack of integrity I've noticed around um, Western reporters. And at this point, you know, there's the term that's been used, stenographers, Western stenographers, just writing down the talking points from the U.S. government, U.S. State Department, U.S. intelligence. And that's really what's been happening. It's, it's, it's really startling. And, you know, people are not blind to it because the polls, I don't know, Lee, if you've heard the most recent poll, poll out of University of Chicago, but they did a poll with both Democrats and Republicans, number one, don't trust the government, and number two, don't trust the mainstream corporate media. And, it, I mean, it was, it was like half the population, half of each. It was a startling amount. And one of the other startling um, things out of that was that uh, I think it was 45% of, um, and I don't want to get this wrong, Republicans, and then another percentage of Democrats thought that they had to take arms against their government at some point. They may have to. I mean, in other words, it was close to half on both parties. People are upset, and independents were in there, too. People are well, seeing the corruption in, in both the media you, and the government. Are you, They're seeing are, are you seeing the farmers' riots go, going on in the Netherlands right now? Are you seeing it? 
any of his video yeah, yeah. for the farmers? They a bunch of manure. They dumped a bunch of manure to block the government buildings in Holland. I thought that was great. <laughs> well, I think it shows why people feel when you see the way the real pre police brutality is in the Netherlands, not thought of as a very Nazi-like country, but when you see what's happening to farmers in Amsterdam or truckers in Canada, do you understand why a number of people have concerns that they people may have to take up arms against the police eventually? Well, I mean, I think they feel like um, they're being um, that the police are being weaponized by the ruling elite. They're, it's not really about rule of law as much as, as control and power. Um, and so I think that's what why people are are in this mode, like they don't trust their government anymore. And Canadian, you know, like what what happened with the Canadians when they froze their bank accounts? Um, that's not been done before in Canada, to my knowledge. Um, there's a German reporter who just reported that she she's reporting from Donbass and she's reporting truth about you know giving balance to what's happening in this proxy war against Russia using Ukraine. She's she's there in the Donbass region showing you know some real reporting and. Um, is maybe facing three years in prison back in Germany for, for that. Her bank account was frozen, and her father's bank account was frozen. So, I mean, the overreach of some of the governments is amazing. And then you see, like, here in America, you see, like, um, journalists being deplatformed, demonetized, silenced. Um, their, their work taken down. Of course, mine was taken down for a while um, we camped, and then uh, Jackson Hinkle just got banned from PayPal. Y- you know, different mechanisms that he could get paid for his independent reporting has all been. You know, he's being banned from every platform that's American and European. So it's yeah, they're trying every tactic to silence. And so what that does, I think, is it make people look and say, "Why are you banning these people? Why are you silencing them? What do we need to know that you're hiding?" Yes. And now, from from your personal perspective, you hinted at it before. So talk about, I'm going to let you explain it, because I'm sure you've told your story about a billion times now, correct? The the Biden part. You know, in, in totality, really, there's two interviews, um, the Megyn Kelly, which anyone can find, and Katie Halper, where I go start to finish. And then, of course, in my book, Left Out, When the Truth Doesn't Fit In, I, I go into details about what happened. Yeah. So so j- just broadly outline it for people who come in the show. Put it however you want to. You know, I, I, I was um, working as an actress and a model when I was very young, up until my 20s. And then I was in college, and I, I loved political science always, was very interested in it, wanted to eventually even maybe run for office myself at that time in my 20s. I was very, you know, very focused. And um, I got an internship with Leon Petta, and then um, I worked in congressional races, and I was trained with, um, you know, I, I worked with Democrats at that time in the 90s, and then got a job with uh, Joe Biden. He was then the sen- a senator and, of course, head of the judiciary and the Foreign Relations Committee, which I'm interested in international politics. So that was of interest. And, um, yeah, I was a low-level staffer, and I thought it would be just a great stepping stone towards, you know, as I was completing, you know, I wanted to eventually get a law degree and complete my education and so on and so forth. And then, you know, what happened is I was sexually harassed by him in a pretty remarkable way. It was even more than the 90s normal. 
normal kind of what you experience on the Hill. And then um, I was sexually assaulted, and I did try to report in 1993. There is a written report somewhere, but he has it sealed, I believe, in the University of Delaware, and it is not going to be opened. Um, and so I came forward in 2019 and 2020, and he wasn't yet the candidate when I came forward. Um, to Time's Up, not knowing that the three leaders of Time's Up and Time's Up Legal Defense Fund were already on Joe Biden's payroll, and I didn't know that till later. And um, Anita Dunn, who was one of the founders of Time's Up, was more than just, you know, she was the head of the PR firm helping Joe Biden's campaign and then went on to be her, to be his senior White House, House advisor. Now, their corruption towards me and towards other women and the Cuomo survivors was exposed, um, not very loudly, but there was a few articles, even in the New York Times, and they all had to resign and step down, and Time's Up has basically been dismantled, and they're trying to rebuild it. Um, but part of the reason it was dismantled was because of my case, because of their corruption and mishandling, and Cuomo and how they handled the Cuomo survivors as well. They had been communicating with Cuomo's office and had been colluding to smear the Cuomo survivors like they did me. And they used my case as an example of how to do it, to discredit a survivor. So I went through quite a lot trying to come forward and then just got vilified on a world level and got called a Russian agent and every other name under the book. And, you know, it was, it was a very trying time. And so since then, I've been trying to move forward. Um, I've given up on any hope for justice, but it takes one member of Congress to open up a congressional investigation into Joe Biden, and I hope that they do, um, because now we've discovered the Hunter laptop was a, was a valid story. New York Post should have never been shut down over it. Like, remember, they got taken off social media um, because they printed about Hunter Biden's laptop. So there is a lot of corruption there, I think, with in regards to Ukraine, like basically a money laundering, it's, that's my opinion. It's, it looks like a money laundering operation to me at a very high level. And, um, you know, and also his misconduct with other women, not just me, I think other women would come forward. So my hope is if a Republican, you know, decides to or a Democrat, whoever, I don't even care, opens a, a congressional investigation, I would testify under oath. Now, you said something, and, and I, I agree with it, and it makes sense. And I'm not ar being argumentative at all. But do you ever you hear yourself and get sad that you have no hope for justice? Think about that. Because I, I assume when you came to Washington to start interning or whatever, you did not have that attitude. So is that something that you think about and the fact is that you're not you're not cynical and you're not insane and but you have no literal, literally no hope or justice right I, I really don't you know Lee, and that's because of just the way i've seen things unfold not just for me but for other people the way the cuomo survivors retreated i think was very um indicative of just the attitude i think the way our country is being so aggressive towards russia and this proxy war we're fighting against them and all the death and destruction um that's happening in other countries that we don't even talk about like yemen um afghanistan um syria iraq iran and i feel like my case is is 
you know, it was wrong and it, it shouldn't have happened, but, but it's like uh, compared to all the other wrongs, it's, it's just one drop in the bucket, if that makes sense. And, and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of care or attention for women's issues in general. And, you know, so frankly, I, I just don't really see any kind of impetus for there to be justice of any kind. Um, that said, I'm open, like I said, for there to be consequences for Biden if, if there was an investigation. And I think that in a sort of safe kind of, you know, framework, like a congressional investigation where people are under oath, it, it might have a very different result with people testifying, um, former staff might admit things that, you know, hadn't been brought to light before. And I think it would also provide a safe place for women, other women who were affected by Joe Biden to come forward. I know of at least two that have not been public. Were you shocked personally? I'm not being overly empathetic, Jim, but someone can understand Joe Biden's reaction or someone on Joe Biden's staff, them attacking you and calling you a liar or whatever. That makes sense in in a sense that you go, well, yeah, that's the person who's being accused or they work for him. But what I'm always amazed by in stories like this is you have people who are total strangers to Joe Biden. They owe him nothing. They don't work for him. They're just someone who voted for him or maybe didn't even vote for him. And they take Joe Biden's side automatically and attack you. Does that make sense? Are you yeah. sometimes amazed by the the regular people who have no connection to Biden at all and how vicious and dishonest they've been? Does that make sense? It's been, yeah, yeah. I mean, I discovered a few things that I'm still kind of trying to process. Like I haven't even, so much happened so quickly, It's I'm still kind of mulling over. But, um, you know, there were people that were paid to discredit me that were acquaintances, people I knew, like didn't know well or whatever, but they were paid literally to smear me, given money. And I mean, that's, that's you know, in, in two cases, um, there was that. And then there was, I mean, I even had relatively that, that I'm still not speaking to that um, felt so strongly against Trump that they were like feeling like I was doing something wrong. And they knew, like one of my relatives had known since it happened that it happened and still thought I shouldn't say anything, which is just ludicrous. Now, I think this um, Rose McGowan, whom I admire so much and who stood by me when no one else did, said it best. She said that the American cult, they're like, um, the American political parties are like a cult. And she was in a cult and survived it, and she knows what they are. And she's right. I think this blue team, red team thing, it's almost a cult-like thing. You, you saw the you saw the memes of blue, no matter who, and all that kind of nonsense. Now, again, that's propagandized. That's well paid. I mean, Joe Biden spent two point two million on his PR, according to FEC, maybe even more, to silence stories like mine and the Hunter Biden, and to build up his image. And so. You know, in a way, it's like the United States has become just run by these really corrupt public relations machines that want an image, and that's it. There's nothing behind it. And it's really the, the um, you know, the billionaires behind these puppets, these political puppets that are actually running things, the people that you don't see, the elite few. 
And, um, you know, that's my, my kind of take on it. And it's actually the imbalance of wealth that we're experiencing in the United States is evidence to that. You know, there's only a handful of people that have most of the American wealth. And Joe Biden is one of their puppets. So this is how it is. I don't understand why people um, bought into the Democratic, but I think people are starting to wake up. And I think the Roe v. Wade, on one hand, I saw $80 million was donated to the Democratic Party because of the Roe v. Wade, right? $80 million is a lot. But support has waned, um, especially among young people. They're done with the Democrats using you know, identity politics to sway their, you know, their, their, uh, their leaning politically. And, and basically when they could have, if they really were, um, you know, dedicated to the Roe v. Wade, it would have been modified back with Obama and it wasn't. Okay. So it's a political tool. So, you know, unfortunately my case became, you know, to kind of come back around became like a political football so you saw people, celebrities like Deborah Messing and Rosanna Arquette going after me. They'd never met me, never spoke to me, knew nothing about my story, but they attacked me viciously. And um, Edward, Edward Isaac Dovier from The Atlantic called me a Russian agent and spread that all over. And that was the, the narrative. Um, so even if you did believe that, that Joe Biden sexually assaulted me, something happened when I was a staffer, they painted me as such a villain, no one cared. So that was a tactic. And they use it on individuals, and they use it on whole countries, like they're using it on Russia, that whole tactic of villainizing. Did anybody, I'm sure a couple of people, but maybe not, did anybody reach out to you kind of privately, anyone famous to say, hey, I'm seeing this story. I'd like to find out from you off the record what what happened. I'd like to talk to you about that. And... You know what I'm saying? I'm sure if Roseanne Arcata or someone had reached out to you privately and said, I'd like this skinny on what happened, you would have talked to them, right? Of course I would have. Yeah. In fact, um, you know, I reached out to AOC, Bernie Sanders, um, Nancy Pelosi. I reached out and Diane Feinstein because I lived in California at the time. I reached out to my own, um, you know, representatives as well as, you know, AOC is not my representative. And, and Elizabeth Warren, none of them. The only one who answered was Elizabeth Warren saying she couldn't, um, saying just a form letter asking me to donate to her campaign. That was an acknowledgement she received. <laughs> but I, I, like, pled with them, hey, look, I've been a congressional staffer. I've been an intern. I've worked in campaigns. I've been a lifelong Democrat. This happened to me. I tried to get justice a couple of times. I would like some help. And this is before I went public and no response, not from Bernie, not from AOC, none of them. None of them would reach out and call me. Now, um, someone who did reach out to call me was um, Anita Hill. And um, she actually was very um, kind and offered her condolences for what I was going through and about to go through at that time. And she also mentioned me in her book. And she did obviously um, believe what happened to me. Um, and supported me. So, you know, there was that. But there were other celebrities that I can't name that reached out quietly and just, they can't. They just, um, I was getting so vilified and so attacked, they were afraid that machine coming towards them. And you understand that, obviously. I understand. 
stand it. But then you look at Rose McGowan and she's fearless. She didn't care. She thought, you know, she said she stood, stood by me publicly. So I, I admire that. In in last minute or two, and by the way, thanks for talking, Tara. It's been a great interview. And we're really pleased to have you on the show. How do you stay hopeful given everything you've seen and been through? How do you stay hopeful about politics? Because, you know, I'm trying to let people see, kind of like pull back the curtain on Oz. And one of the work, I'm trying to pull back the curtain on, I decided to use my platform in a couple of ways. One, to help other survivors that get smashed down by powerful people. And I try to do that when I can. And the other is I want to push back against russophobia. I really feel strongly that it's hurting our nation. And now more than ever, you know, $54 billion going to Ukraine for weaponry is insane. We're not taking care of infrastructure at home. Um, Boris Johnson is on the brink of being relieved of his duties as Prime Minister of England because of his obsession with Ukraine that's along the obsessive lines of the Biden administration. And it's leading to his downfall. England is suffering economically, and and they're going to get him out. And I think we need to do the same here. So my hope is is that people are starting to really see the corruption and that we're going to push past this, and maybe we're going to accept that there is a multipolar world and it's not about Western hegemony. It's not about our power economically or any other kind of power. Really. And Tara, we're out of time. But last question. Do you think Boris makes it through the weekend? No, I think he's out by weekend. OK, yeah, I've said that too. I think that by the weekend, we'll see what happens. Great appearance. Thanks so much. Let's take a short break and we'll be back on the backstory. Back in the backstory, a bastion of free speech and open dialogue in the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm Lee Stranahan. This is the backstory. So there we have it. First time guest, Tara Reed. And great appearance. What do you think, Rod? Uh, no, she's, uh, she's very courageous, and I think she was a great guest as well. And I think, you know, it's one thing everybody, everybody can say they commiserate, but until you feel the pressure of the entire world's media attacking you, you know, I haven't even felt that. And I've, I've had some media, New York Times or whoever, attack me. CNN recently did a hit piece of me. But what she went through, that's un- unfathomable for most people. You agree? Uh, no, I definitely, I definitely agree with you. That I have two daughters, Lee, and I would hate for them to go through what she went through, or even, you know, we had Reese Everson, I think, the week before. So, you know, that's two women who worked in uh, politics in D.C. who have been assaulted or harassed, and uh, you know, we don't get much justice for these women, even though we're, uh, you know, the political establishment believe all women and you know, all this other stuff, but they don't, they don't uh, abide by what things they say. Yes. And, uh, you know, we talked about Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Bullard yesterday. If Marjorie Taylor Greene was attacked and raped in an alley, there'd be people on social media 
half laughing about it. Do you agree? I'm, I mean, as as ugly an image as that is, her being attacked, there'd be people would be happy about it. Do you agree, Rod? Yeah, there'd be a segment of the population that would definitely be happy about it. Not a large, but a significant, but a but a, uh, a percentage of, to say the least. That that's right, and they make fun of her, and they talk about, you know, who I know who I've dealt with and talked to about some of the stuff is George Zimmerman. I've talked to, and George points out, of course, he killed Trayvon Martin after Martin attacked him. And it's very clear, Trayvon Martin attacked George Zimmerman in Orlando and was beating his head into the ground. And it's easy to find that that's what happened. And Rod, you've seen the, the, the witnesses testify that Trayvon was beating up George, George Zimmerman, beating his head into the ground and grabbed for his gun. Right, Rod? You've seen the evidence of that. I remember the uh, CNN when they interviewed the uh, the apartment. I guess it was right in front of where it was happening. And they, they, they uh, yes. the person, I believe, I believe it was a man talking about, he heard uh, George screaming. So, yeah. Yes. And George has said that if George Zimmerman had been shot by any of the multiple people who tried to kill him, every time he gets shot at, about half of Twitter is thrilled by it. You've seen that, right? When George Zimmerman gets shot at, half of Twitter, the woke half, thinks it's great. Now, I've talked to George. It doesn't feel good to have people who, who you know would be happy if you died. Right? So, that's what... Yeah, I agree, I agree with you on that, Lee. No. And, and by the way, it's on the left as well. I can think of people who people would be happy if they died and they didn't do anything wrong and it's not all people on the right but it's mostly people on the right that's what i've noticed it's mostly people on the right and so um, i would i would say they've also demonized people who were considered on the left uh and that they you know they now categorize them i mean in reality, Donald Trump's kind of been on the left when he was a celebrity, and you know now, you know if he died or got killed, you know there'd be there'd be a party in parts of America. That's right, that's right, and he will die eventually because you know we all do, and you know he's older, and so I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that he's mortal, and so when we lose Donald Trump, I'm going to have to avoid Twitter that day. Does it make sense? You, you, might have to stay, you might have to stay in the house, Lee. There might be cars honking and stuff like that and people in the street. Uh, I think it'll be, uh, who knows when that'll happen, but if it were to happen in the next 10 years or so, you would see some crazy stuff like that. Maybe a mini parade in San Francisco and LA and stuff like that. Yes. And if he died of COVID, that would have, oh my gosh, the cake companies would have been out of cake in certain cities but luckily he survived COVID and I say luckily because it allowed people to make fun of the people who were worried about COVID and want Trump dead coming up this hour our friend Mark Frost 
here on The Backstory. Now, I've talked about in the past couple of days that I've been studying the 1917 Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution. I've been reading the book, 10 Days That Shook the World by John Reed, a noted communist writer about the 10 Days That Shook the World, the fall revolution in Russia. And I didn't know much about it. I knew about it broadly, but I didn't know a lot of details. Have you studied that much, Rod? And don't be shy about saying no, because I hadn't, so. No, Lee, I've, I've just heard very, like, cliff notes of it, you know, and, and so I have, like, very brief knowledge, not, not anything extensive. So I'd like to get uh, Caleb Malpin on the show at some point in the next few days. Because I listened to a lot of stuff, Caleb. Caleb, as a you know explicit communist, knows a lot about that history. But I'm going to go to calls. Then I'm going to present you with a thought experiment, Rod. Because you know one thing that I learned about the 1917 revolution is that people today talk about, gee. We, we could be facing a civil war or revolution, right? You see people talk about that, about today in America all the time, right? And how crazy things are. Yeah, or That's a race a, war. Yeah, or a race war. Right. And in 1917, they were dealing with a lot of this stuff, but to a much greater extent, for instance— St. Petersburg, called Petrograd in those days. Petrograd, Moscow, Kiev, Odessa, all of those cities had large groups of armed citizens in different groups. Do you know, are the, do you see any large groups of only armed citizens, for instance, firefighters or airline pilots or postal workers? that have formed armed groups, or Republicans, or Democrats. Do you see that kind of thing? No, not in any large extent that I would be uh, focused on, no. And that was normal in Russia in 1917. That's why I'm pointing out. That was normal. You, you'd see the World War I was going on, and Russia was in World War I and losing it. And a lot of soldiers were starving. They couldn't get food, and they were being killed. And so the soldiers, a lot of them deserted or were in the cities. And they were among the groups that were in armed groups. And furthermore, they were in armed groups that would go listen to speeches and political discussion at night, at when was the last time, Rod, that you and a group of people in your town went to the local movie theater armed to hear political speech? Oh, never. Right. And that was common in 1917. So I'm going to give a thought experiment, but let's go to Jarif, 202-521-1320. 
Tarif, what's on your mind? Um, thank y'all for taking my call. I have three comments. Okay, first I'd like to say, free uh, free Julian Assange. My first comment is, um, Russia going to be Russia, um, Venezuela is going to be having military exercises and games in Venezuela. Um, coming this mid August, going to have Iran, Russia, China, and ten other countries. It is going to be there having military war games in Venezuela. My second comment is um, <clears throat> Russia is making preparations to start receiving payment in rubles and grain and wheat in the next coming weeks. That you know to increase their account um, the commodities with uh, to attach their ruble to the commodities as well. My last comment is my opinion. Lately, you've been having more and more people coming out supporting Julian Assange. You had the, uh, a person, the, the head of, I think he was the head of Australian, um, 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 Attorney General for Australia came out and, and said, you know, this has been going on too long. He needed to be basically free. He was referring to Julian Assange. You had Elmo came out for the past uh, two weeks, say, brought Julian Assange's name up to three times within a two-week period. Somebody he needed to be free, and he had other MPs from Australia that came out about joining signs, and um, he have yet to be shipped to the United States, even though Patel, Patel already signed the paperwork. So that means something under the tables is working. Hopefully, they can get Freedom Man and bring him back home, so he can continue to work and uh, and, uh, and expose these corrupt um, bureaucrats. So, yeah, that's all I wanted to say today. Thank y'all. I appreciate it. Great culture reef as usual. And important stuff you're bringing about but Russia, too. But uh, so here's my thought experiment, Rod. I was trying to think, what if today were more like things in 1917 Russia? Okay? So this is going to sound really weird. And I know it's going to sound weird. But this is the kind of thing that would have happened in Russia. Because here's what I noticed. So imagine if tonight Donald Trump started appearing in public with dozens of armed people, armed security, around him all the time. That would be weird, right? Uh, yeah, uh, appearance-wise, it would be weird, but I mean, it's... The, the numerous threats on his life, uh, you know, I think he would need something like that. But yeah, it would it would be weird. Well, I'll tell you, it's not threats on his life so much as threats on and and they let's say they ask him, why are you suddenly appearing everywhere with dozens of armed people? Because by the way, in Russia that happened. There were people who surrounding him all the time were basically armed people. Right. Some of the political leaders at the time, they were all surrounded by armed people. So what if Trump said they said, are you worried about civilians? And he said, no, I'm worried that the Biden administration is clearly going to try to arrest me on Trump to political charges. Now. And let's take the second part first. Do you think, leave the arm part aside, 
do you think the Biden administration put a percentage on it? 50-50? 70-30? No chance it's going to happen? Do you think the Biden administration is and the Democratic Party is aiming to arrest Donald Trump and indict him for insurrection charges with the January 6th committee. Does that seem plausible to you, Rod? Are they trying to? Yeah, I would say, uh, I'd say 60-40. I'd say the 60% of them, that's their main goal, and uh, 40% is just to keep them out of uh, running for the White House again. Okay, and I actually agree with that. I, I don't think it's guaranteed, but I think it's likely. And that's why I would say 60% is about where I'd go. Six, it, does it make sense? It's likely that they're going to indict him on insurrection charges due to January 6th. Now, we've seen in Washington FBI raids recently on Clark and Eastman, on former Justice Department officials, early morning raids. Does that make sense? You know about those, right, right Rod? We've talked about them numerous yeah. times. Yeah. Okay. Now, imagine if George Eastman or Clark had been surrounded by dozens of armed people. So a knock comes on the door, and there's dozens of people at the door. And they look out and they go, who is it? The FBI. And they said, We're not going to let you talk to Clark. We don't, we think this is a political, you see what I'm saying? I think dozens of armed people at Clark's house, for instance, if Roger Stone had had dozens of armed people, I don't think the raid on him would have happened. Does that make sense? I really don't. Because what's the FBI going to do? They, they send a dozen, dozen guys with guns. Are they going to go get more? They're going to go get 100 guys? I think eventually they would. But their initial move would be, do you agree, would have a chilling effect on the FBI's activities? Yeah, they wouldn't, they wouldn't go in. <laughs> they wouldn't go in gun blazing for that situation. They would, uh, they would retreat and they would try to figure out what to do next. And when they go to arrest Trump for insurrection, they're not going to put a they're not they've shown what they're going to do. They're not going to say to him, hey, come down to the DA's office nine o'clock Monday. They're going to go in with long guns to Mar-a-Lago. Right. And a CNN crew. You agree with that, Rod? They're they're going to make a show of it. Oh yeah, that'd be like a pay-per-view event, one hundred percent. That's what their main. Now, a lot of times, so this is going to seem like I'm veering off topic slightly, but I'll come back to it. A lot of times, when there's Second Amendment arguments, you've heard the argument. People say, "Well, we need guns to protect against the government," and then. Invariably, someone says, how are you going to protect against planes and tanks? The military, the government has, you know, missiles. And 
your your gun is no protection against a missile. Have you heard that argument? Why people say the Second Amendment is an effective protection, and it's usually people who don't like the Second Amendment. It's not effective protection against the government. You heard that? Yeah, I've heard that argument many times. And in one sense, it makes sense. But in another sense, if they didn't take tanks or planes or missiles against Roger Stone or Clark or Eastman, does that make sense? It was it was a dozen FBI guys with guns. That's what it was. And so against what they're actually going to bring against Trump or you or anybody, because in 1917, I was thinking about this. Because this would happen, there were there are numerous instances like this in October 1917, where people went in to get somebody from a competing faction, and I, I'd, I'd say the Democrats are a competing faction at this point. Does that make sense, Rod? The Democrats can be thought of as a competing military faction. Okay. But if they were to try to do that, I'm not saying Trump should do that at all. I'm saying that shows a clear difference between revolutionary times in 1917 and now. We have not gotten to that point yet. But I predict you could start seeing that. I think there's nothing keeping Trump from doing it. Trump has the money to be able to afford a large armed group of people. And if Trump thought there's a chance he could get put away in prison for years awaiting trial, he might decide, I'm better off trying to avoid that. So that's a thought experiment. When you start seeing that, when you start seeing large groups of armed people, that's when you know things are getting hairy, shall we say. 202-521-1320. Brave, what's on your mind? Hey, what's going on, Lee? How you doing, man? I actually was calling in with a question for, uh, I was hoping you could pass them, uh, you could ask Mark Frost, but your thought experiment uh, it, it's, it's intriguing, and I, and I have to um, I have to jump on it. Um, now I, I understand the point that you were making with the thought experiment. I understand the direction you were going. So, um, but I, I so I'm going to straw man just a little bit here because I disagree on, with certain things, certain parts with certain parts of it. Um, not that you were actually making this point, but that was your underlying point. But I'll go here. Here I go anyway. So I, I don't I don't believe that we would see the First of all, uh, presidents and former presidents, especially obviously former presidents, they kind of walk around with armed people anyways, but more so than that. I just don't believe that the whole January 6th thing and all of this stuff, I don't believe that they really have a, a true interest in, um, in indicting. I mean, they would probably love to do it just for the show, but I don't really think they have a true interest in, one, indicting Trump and especially imprisoning Trump, right? I think that... Um, not, not any Democrats with any real power. I think that as much as they hate Trump, 
I think they love him. I think they love him because he motivates their base in a way that all of their crappy actions and all and all of their fascist actions they're doing right now does not. Like, I think they love that guy. I think they love every bit of every foul thing he does that they can blow out of proportion, all the little simple, stupid lies, all of that stuff that they make seem, like, so horrible. I think they love all of that stuff because, again, it's, it's meat to their base. Like, the Hunter Biden laptop thing doesn't mean anything to the most blue Democrat. The war in Ukraine, well, and all the money that— Br- Br- let, me say, let me say this. I see your point, but that happened in 1972. A lot of times you don't know. I, I can't sit here and say for sure they're going to arrest Trump. But I, I also don't think, and I don't think you're saying this. Can you say for sure they won't arrest Trump? Oh, no. no we, can, we can't say anything for sure. Because if I could say something for sure, I would call out some lottery tickets for sure and then go play that lottery, right? So <laughs> we can't say anything for sure. But I just, I, I would say that if there was a um, case to be made for a group to try and indict Trump and um, and see um, and see legal action taken against Trump, and I still don't think it would be the case, I would say it's some of the Liz Cheney type uh, Republicans because the Democrats have nothing to get, have nothing but think, nothing but momentum to gain from a Trump, right? Even though they pretend like they don't want him to go back, they don't want him to run, and also they, I, I literally believe. Well, so, so I agree. It's Republicans. In league, and let me let me point out that the few things I would point out in favor of them saying they are serious, there for sure have been people in bad conditions in prison in D.C. due January 6th for close to two years, right? So we know that for sure. The raids have happened for sure on Clark and Eastman. So we have enough signs that they're willing to do, it's not like they've not arrested anyone. And then it's a matter of them saying, if they do what they did civilians to Trump. So that's my argument, is that that. it's possible. I get that, and it it makes sense. I just just feel like... um and again, this is just my, my simple speculation, right? Because I'm just this cynical. I, I don't believe that. Like, like so you take an AOC. I think an AOC would love to see Trump in chains, right? I, I guarantee that, right? I, I can stand by that a hundred percent. But Trump is not. That, to, to your to your point, Trump is. Um, they're, they're having people that have been arrested, but those aren't like those aren't those aren't presidents. You know, that's, it's not Trump, right? It's not those aren't presidents. And I think there's a fine line to be crossed by any of the establishment power, whether Democrat or Republican. Uh, when it comes to uh, trying and imprisoning a president, especially a president that's out of power, because then that opens up the playing field. Because here's what we know for, uh, I mean, for a reasonable amount of fact, I think that the next republic, the next president will be Republican or possibly, hopefully, God thank, God willing, independent, right? But it definitely won't be a Democrat. If, if there is a God in the sky above or in the ground below, depending on what you believe in, I, I uh, would hope that it would not be a Democratic president, meaning the Republicans will have a lot of power going in. If the Democrats were—I were, know all of this is, you know, just general conversation, but, super, um, but if the Democrats were able to uh, successfully try and imprison Trump, I think it would be completely common sense for the Republicans in power to then go back after Biden for this illegal war that we're fighting in. It would not, I mean, not just this illegal war, because there's gangs that they can go after him for, but most definitely for this illegal war that we are now money laundering uh, through in uh, Ukraine. And that's my only, that's my only reason for, um, for thinking that 
any Democrat uh, with power that, that's been in power would know better than to go that far because, you know, they all have blood on their hands when it comes to the past president, whether Republican or Democrat. But my question, if I could, real quick, for Mark Frost was, I wonder. Uh, I mean, I wonder if um, because everybody says we're going into a recession. I personally, I personally believe that we are in recession, and I personally believe that what we're going into is far beyond recession. I think we're going to. I, I genuinely believe that we are going into a realignment, reconfiguration of our economy and the way our, our country functions. Right. But having said that, um, going under the understand under the assumption that we're going into a um, a uh, recession, I, I guess my question to Mark Frost, if you could, would be. What signs does he think we can look forward to, if any, for when we will be coming out of that? Or what would, what would things that would milestone things that would occur that would signal um, coming out of recession, if it were the case? Okay, so ask Mark about. Say that again, Brave. Okay, for future frost. <laughs> Uh, if we are indeed going into a recession, which I do believe we are uh, going to far worse than that, um, and it lasts, say, for two to three years, what are some milestones that we typically could expect, um, if any, to, to, to uh, signify coming out of recession? What, what changes in the country could we look forward to to signify that we would be coming, to signal that we were coming out of recession? Okay, I see the question. So let's, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk to Eagle Scout entrepreneur, proud rock drummer, Mark Frost, on the backstory. backstory and on the air on the radio in the capital the empire of lies washington dc at 105.5 fm am 1390 very pleased to be joined by our friend eagle scout entrepreneur educator economist and prog rock drummer mark frost hey mark how you doing doing quite well it's nice and hot and humid in georgia if it's hot and humid in south dakota and it is I can't imagine the hell that that is Georgia right now. Yeah. How hot is it? Is it muggy? Yeah, it's muggy as can be. Just getting the mail is like a sauna. Yeah, I believe it. So, Mark, how you been, first off? Been good, playing some music, doing some good research, making a little money. So, life is good. Do a little dance, make a little love, get down tonight. That would be your philosophy, correct, Mark? Yes. Yes, the KC philosophy. That's right. So I, I knew you'd get the reference because you know not only older prog rock, but older music in general, right? The class, let me, let me ask your opinion on this. What do you think the best era, decade, if you had to pick one decade as the best in music history, which was it? Which decade? Yeah. I'm going to have to say the 60s. Would you put it over the 70s? Because I would go with the 70s, personally. Here's the deal. Uh, if I get to pick any 10 years, it's roughly 65 to 75. Yeah. But if I have yeah. to pick a decade, I mean, prog rock really began at the end of of uh, 69. And, it, I mean, it really began with King Crimson, if you want to 
talk about what prog rock is, that's, that's how it began. And that's what it was. And so, yeah. Well, on contemporary music, let me just ask, cause this, I, I haven't gone to see it cause it's been nowhere near me that I was aware of, but have you seen the band Primus who do the South Park theme doing the tribute to Kings tour? Have you seen that? No, I haven't. Okay. So Primus is playing all of Rush Farewell to Kings live. Oh wow. And you can find you can find clips on YouTube uh, like Xanadu and Closer to the Heart, but songs like Xanadu and Singing Sex One, they're doing live and they're doing very good versions of them. Over their drummer is good. And it's Les Claypool playing bass and singing. But they're very good. And that's a weird album. If you're going to cover a Rush album, that's an obscure kind of... Do you agree? Farewell to Kings is, even among Rush albums, sort of bizarre. Yeah, it's one of my favorites, but yeah, it's nevertheless, even for them, it's odd. Yes, and I agree, it's one of my favorites too. But you might want to look that up. You'll enjoy it. So Primus, they just played out in California on their Tribute to Kings tour. So prog rock fans, South Park fans, be aware of that. So Mark, uh, Brave was asking a question for you about the coming recession. Now, my understanding, if I'm not an economist, but, so correct me if I'm wrong, the definition of recession is when the GDP of a country goes down for six months in a row. Am I correct on that? Well, sort of. Technically, the official definition is is two successive quarters of uh, GDP contraction. Okay, so same time period, roughly, as this definition about, about yeah, yeah. So it's how they measure. So, and the way you measure how you're out of the recession is the GDP starts going up, right? Generally speaking, yeah. I mean. Uh, Basically, you you expect that your goods and services that you exchange with yourselves and the and and people of other nationalities, that sort of thing is what's driving you to to use money and to have trade in the first place. But the the problem that that they have with inflation right now is, and I've been pretty consistent on this for years, is that. We're, we're not even close. I mean, people are talking about how long this is expected to last. Well, it's expected to last quite a long time. And the problem with this type of boom-bust type of thing that we've engineered by the government, so one of the busts was engineered by the government. One of them was by the pandemic. And so now we have this, we have several strong structural inflationary pressures on the economy from the supply chain to the amount of money that is in circulation at the time. And just as importantly, and I talked about this, I think it was a year ago, was uh, unused capital. We're awash with capital in this country. We have so much capital in this country, we don't know what to do with it. It's why, it's why companies are paying off their own stock and things like that. We made money so cheap. It, it was cheaper to be in debt than to not be in debt. And rational holders of money uh, uh, took that to heart. And the bond market, that's what's made the bond market hot these, this last decade, is, has been that phenomenon. And now you have this sort of unholy 
you know, triumvirate of, of inflation that's coming in. And it's not going to get any better because we've cut so much money into the economy. Some people are listening to this right now and probably struggling to pay their rent. Other people, if, if they're listening to this at all, are probably wondering what they're going to do with all their money that they have in the bank. And that's kind of what happened in the economy. So when these things happen, you have these, these, these shocks to the economy. So think of it as an earthquake. So the economy starts rattling and things start falling off. And, and that's sort of kind of what inflation does. It rattles the economy and things start falling off. And if you're a, uh, person, if you're a typical U.S. senior, for instance, uh, which means you rely primarily on your Social Security income to survive, then inflation is not 9% for you. Inflation is about 35% for you. And that's the problem that we have right now. And the only way out of this inflation, the only way out of it, is the way that we got into it, except you go in reverse. Rather than quantitative expansion of the money supply, you're going to have quantitative tightening, which means money becomes more scarce. And what that does is that puts the economy into a recession. But here's the problem. This is as much of an art as it is a science, and it's impossible to get it exactly right. You have to err on the side of inflation, or you err on the side of employment, but you can't have both. And that's what seems like that they want to have. They seem to think they can have their cake and eat it too. And my main problem with this administration on the subject of inflation has just been their, their refusal to even acknowledge that it's a problem. And then once they can't really do that anymore, then it suddenly becomes an issue that, well, Russia did this or somebody else did this, and, 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 it, and it becomes a blame game. And, and if you want to look at real economic truths, not sound bites on on TV. Well, every every working economist, I'm not talking about a talking head. I'm talking about people that actually make their living with economics. Every economist understands what's going on. It's, it, this isn't like a super mystery, and none of us understand how we got here. We understand exactly how we got here. We understand exactly what's going to have to happen to get us out of here, and what's going to have to happen to get us out of here is a lot of pain. The problem is when the politics come in, because the people that paid, because the people that are going to primarily pay the pain of the inflation, are not necessarily people who benefited from that inflation, and in fact, quite the contrary. And that's where the political economy comes in—the tax incidence of inflation, because inflation is a tax. Now, in 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 fact, did you see Joe Biden when a reporter asked him out in public somewhere about the recession? He he. He cascaded this journalist for even asking about recession. He said, no, people aren't saying that. And you sound like a Republican, as though this journalist had made up the idea that a lot of people expect a recession coming. Did you see Biden attack the reporter on that? Uh, No, I didn't. But it does not surprise me because it's not something the emperor wants to hear. I mean, to to me, that's akin to the Fuhrer in the bunker three days before he killed himself, you know, giving orders for divisions that didn't exist to attack. I mean, that's that's the equivalent of what Biden's doing. It's either he truly doesn't know these basic economic truths, which is worrisome, or he does know them, 
and there's some other nefarious purpose in this. And I'm not even sure which of the two possibilities is 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 the worst. But uh, he has to have smart people around him that understand how basic inflation is caused and how basic inflation is fought. I mean, there's a, there, it, it, it isn't like there's just one book on the subject. There, there's dozens and dozens of books. There's a good two dozen classic books that every monetary economist must read. And, and the principles are worked out quite well. We know that, that rapid expansion of the money supply causes inflation. Just like earthquakes cause buildings to fall down, we we understand there's a causal element there, and uh, the administration should too. And if they don't, then they're incompetent. But the but the Fed, they don't have the wiggle room to be in unreality on this. Am I correct? The Fed, the Fed in, just know, and they they right. they are going to be raising interest rates. Correct. Well, yeah, what the Fed actually does when they raise interest rates is they manipulate the bond prices. So what they want to do is make the bond, the bond market fall. Because if the bond market falls, what happens to the yield on bonds? As the price of a bond declines, the yield on that bond increases proportionally. So what they actually want to do is they want to slam the bond market. And that's the only way that they can. They have to change people's expectations. In fancy language, we economists have something called time preference. At what point of the interest rate are you willing to accept future money as opposed to present money? And everybody has a time preference. Some people pay 27% for a boombox. Some people won't even pay 1% to finance a car. So that's what we mean by time preference. And it's a, and it's a function of... Uh, of a person's personality and their financial position. And inflation changes people's tax preference. So what we're, what we're seeing right now is people hoarding money. People are hoarding liquidity, which is the exact thing that you don't want if, if you were masterminding an economy. You don't want that going on. And, but the very fact that the government is trying to stop it from going on makes it go on even harder. It's like countries that use capital controls. It makes people want to take their money out of the country even harder. Yes. And let me ask you a question, and I'm going to do the usual disclaimers that you do on the radio. Not investment advice, investments are risk, et cetera. But let me ask you a question about how investors think. When you see something like world events, such as the coming food crisis, that's coming in Europe and that's in some places already in the Netherlands. And you're, a lot of people are seeing a f coming food crisis. Do you, does that make sense, Mark? Yes. How do investors, how do you profit off that? A food crisis, how do investors think about where the money they can make on that is? A food crisis is pretty much the actual economics of it work pretty much like any commodity market. So it's not that different from oil, for instance, on those sorts of things. Is that what you're getting at? So, sort of. It's it's really the mindset of investors view the economy differently than normal people often. 
norm, what what normal people might think is horrible, some investors see opportunity in that. And I'm trying to take you through that mindset a little bit of how people can see opportunity for them investment-wise, whereas the economy sees disaster. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, because it's, it, it's uh, you know, Lord Keynes coined that phrase, animal spirits. You know, the three demands for money were, you know, was a transaction demand, a precautionary demand, and animal spirits. And the transaction demand and and the uh, and the and the and the precautionary demand were relatively steady uh, percentages and numbers. Uh, however, the the what animal spirit set in. That's when the irrationality. That's when greed and fear set in. And you know, greed and fear can make people do some very strange things. And that's on that on that type of a deal. But uh. To answer your question, I think that's part of the problem. We've made it. This administration has, I mean, I don't think I'm going too far if I say that, generally speaking, the modern Democrat is a social justice warrior. They care about much more than I do, for instance, about individual social justice categories. Uh, And so as they do that, they're... As they do that, they're they're making for themselves an opportunity to make money, and they're making an opportunity for themselves to lose money. But is making money in times like this something that's good? So, for instance, where I grew up in Oklahoma, we had tornadoes, and we knew kind of when tornado season was. And and back then, you could just you know they had a they had lumber yards, no Home Depots. You'd just go buy some lumber, and I would buy lumber, wait for the storm, and then set up a little lumber for sale out in the front yard, and I would make money. Now, that's called exploiting the misfortune of my neighbor, correct? I think that's what Marx would call it. I think that's fair enough. There was a storm, and so I'm I'm exploiting the fact that I've made it more convenient to get wood at that particular, at that particular location, and people indeed people indeed stopped by and paid a premium price for my wood and uh, and that's the same concept as the food markets there's no right to eat there's a right to go and attempt to earn enough money so that you can afford to eat but there's no right to food there's no right to manufactured things unless you unless you believe in slavery or at least some form of indentured servitude, something like that. And most people, plus the Constitution, would say that that's not really a thing. So on food-type items, there's on any commodity, if you can be ahead of demand, there's money to be made. And it's like anything. I mean, if you can be ahead of the demand and you can plan for that and you, and you, and you, and you aim your arrow and, you, and your arrow is true, then that's a wonderful place to be in. It's also impossible to achieve 100% of the time because sometimes the arrow is going to be far from true, and, and you're going to shoot very, very wrong. But it doesn't mean that there's not money to be made off of crisis because what entrepreneurs really do, I mean, if you really think about it esoterically, what entrepreneurs do is they provide order out of chaos. The market is in chaos. What do, what do entrepreneurs do? Well, 
As soon as we announced our sanctions on Russia, I bought rubles. That's an example. And I did really good because I knew that the ruble was going to climb. It had to because the, because the government had over-pressurized it. It had no place to go but up, relatively speaking. So that's, that's the same idea of opportunities to make money uh, in markets like we're, like we're entering and have already entered. And that's the real fear that I have going forward. There are very few people in the financial world anymore that have any gray hair at all. And they don't remember what it's like to have an extended period of time measured in years, not weeks, years, to where the investment capacity of money was low, the price level was increasing, and unemployment was increasing at the same time. It just hasn't happened in this country until the 70s. And I've been saying for at least a year and a half, I think maybe two years, that we're headed for a 70s-type stagflation if we don't make some choices. And that was before the pandemic. That was that was Trump's spending package. So if you think that bothered me, what do you think the Biden plans did? I'm, I mean, and it was instinctive. It was like, okay, he clearly wants to bring on inflation. I mean, it's like a switch. The choices they made are called inflation. That's the name of the button, inflation. And there's times you want inflation in an, in an economy. There is. Or better said, there's times when inflation is a is a natural correlate with with economic growth. So, so Mark, you're an educator and a student of economics. Uh, let me ask you a question about so, something you're not uh, is a Marxist, but you know about Marxism, correct? You you know Kami, but you know about communism, right? Uh, yeah, I think I've read every word Marx has. Has written that I'm aware of at least. I, there might be something I'm unaware of, but yeah. So I I'm not a Marx scholar, but I'm a strong Marx enthusiast, and I'm very familiar with Marx and economics, and it's and it's so and it's children. Let me hit you with a criticism of Marxism that I haven't heard before, but I was thinking about recently. Marx is often talking as a historian, and he talks about the period where went from feudalism to capitalism. And that's a big topic of Marx, right? Feudalism to capitalism and charting the difference there. But it occurs to me that the current age, I'll call it the post-information economy. We recently had the 15-year anniversary of the iPhone. I would say the current era of the post-information age economy is as different from the area of capitalism, era of capitalism that Marx was talking about, which was the birth of factories and industrial capitalism, as that is from feudalism. Did Marx anticipate the current information-based economy? Uh, no. As and nobody did, and anybody that claims anybody did to the extent that they did uh, I mean, those are people that like to just, I mean, that's clickbait type stuff. I have a new headset thingy and, and it, and it itches and right about where it itches is this little button that wants to do something. I don't even know what it does yet, but anyway, sorry about that. I know the problem with little buttons. I'm empathetic. 
because I used to turn off my uh, phone in the middle of the show sometimes because of a little button. So I'm empathetic with that. But I would say the economy is so different now. I've I've been arguing on the show that we're at an in-between time. In some ways, technology has brought us more power for the individual than ever. What you're able to do as an individual, you've never been more powerful in terms of all kinds of stuff, including media. But in some ways, we're still coming out of the mass production industrial era, and then we're in in-between time. Does that make sense, Mark? Yeah, and you know, uh, my favorite economist, everybody that follows me knows, is Joseph Schumpeter, who coined the phrase creative destruction. And so these holding patterns and booms and busts, that's just part of capitalism. I mean, uh, in fact, Schumpeter called them uh, a cold douche to the capitalist order, that it was actually good to have a recession now and then, that it, that it cleaned out the inefficient and the and the weak companies and let the strong ones be 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 a preserve, so to speak. But uh, Schumpeter made a big in his classic work, Capitalism, Socialism, Democracy. Uh, he spent an entire chapter just on Marx and how uh, Marx treated capitalist growth. For Marx, capitalism was a paradigm in time. And people forget that. Uh, Marx absolutely believed capitalism was essential to have a good communist era. And that you couldn't have a good communist era until you, you had to learn how to be a socialist before you could learn how to be a communist. And before you could learn how to be a communist, excuse me, and then before you could learn how to be a socialist, you had to learn how to be a, a capitalist. You have to accumulate capital the first time somehow. And so anyway, that's kind of where Marx was coming from, a, from, from an economic capital perspective. He was a much better sociologist and a much better historian and a much better commentator of his times, I think, than he was an economist. Ironically, he was way too much of a classical economist. He was more Adam Smith than Adam Smith as far as how he actually thought about the capitalist microeconomic world. And Mark, with that, we're out of time, but a fantastic discussion, as always, with the great Mark Frost. And Mark, don't forget, check out Primus, the Tribute to King's Tour, and it's on YouTube. Check that out. You'll enjoy it. Mark Frost, great appearance. And Tara Reed, thanks so much for being a first-time guest. And to all our callers, Brave, Owl Killer, Sharif, Chris, Ingrid, we'll be back tomorrow with more on the backstory.